Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikwe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Today is Saturday, January the 29th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of this program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the rising interest in Pan-Africanism related to the recent internal conflict in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. Another demonstrator has been killed in the Republic of Sudan as protests continue, demanding uh, civilian rule now. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, over 2,000 people have been displaced due to an attack by the M23 rebel group. And in the United States, the further collapse of transportation infrastructure has been illustrated with the falling of a bridge in Pittsburgh. In the second hour, we examine the recent military coup in the West African state of Burkina Faso in detail and the response uh, of the Regional Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS. Also, we hear a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Director General, Dr. John Nkangason, on the public health situation on the continent. Finally, we review uh, some of the most pressing and burning issues taking place in Africa and throughout the world. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, We're going to take a musical interlude, and uh, we'll be featuring the music of the West African state of Senegal uh, from the artist Yusu Endor. Let's listen in. Oh, 
ce qui est arrivé. À 9h moins 5, la famille nous a abandonnés dans le salon, préférant s'entasser dans une petite chambre avec une télé mal éclairée, uniquement pour regarder cette fameuse édition.
according to an article that was published in the Ethiopian Herald in defiance of subjugations, uh, fighting expansionists, uh, colonizers, and neo-colonizers, staunchly and chasing out mostly white invaders with their tails between their legs, Ethiopia has managed to maintain its African identity intact. Not only that, a standard bearer, it had inspired Africans and colored people across the globe to stand up and fight for their rights. In doing so, Ethiopia did serve as, as a fortress uh, society for the freedom thirsty. The reason why many freedom seeker countries opted to permute Ethiopia's tricolor resides in this datum. It had also an invisible hand in the liberation movement of African countries like Zimbabwe and the facilitation of training of freedom icons like Nelson Mandela. Anti-apartheid sensitizations campaigns were being held here by Oliver Tambo. Via its leaders, Ethiopia did play quite a role in peace brokering efforts. Ethiopia had played, paved the way for the establishment of the Organization of African Unity. Uh, that is why it turned the most sought-after country for the seat of the aforementioned organization. Owing to this fact, Ethiopia stirs a sensitive chord in the hearts of Africa. It has a diplomatic niche there. Uh, there is evidence in its power to galvanize Africans. Take, for instance, the No More in Movement and the African Solutions to African Problems campaign. Needless to mention, that is, why predators harboring a feeling of coming back, donning the cloak of neo-colonization, still have an axe to grind. They abhor Ethiopia's push to take off the ground in all aspects, proving a role model. Here it suffices to examine what they did to cow Ethiopia for constructing the Grand Renaissance Dam that could quench the hydropower thirst of the region, fairly utilizing the transboundary river Abe, the Blue Nile, pursuing boot strappings. At this precise moment in time, changing the battle from the war to the diplomatic front, predators are engaged in a frantic bid to tarnish the image of the country, thereby to compel its loose, to lose its charm and influence. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. In other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent in neighboring uh, Sudan, there is, of course, the continuing struggle uh, for democracy now. And according to reports that came out uh, yesterday, the Sudanese security forces shot dead a person as they opened fire to disperse anti-coup demonstrations on Thursday. Hassan Mukhtar el-Shafi was shot in the right thigh by the security forces during a demonstration to commemorate the martyrs near Buri roundabout in Khartoum. Uh, that is according to a statement released by the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors. At least 78 people have been killed and more than 3,000 detained during the anti-coup protests that started in October of 2021. The demonstrators were touring the homes of those killed in the protests in residential neighborhoods east of the capital of Khartoum. The military leaders in Sudan played several times to investigate the disproportionate use of violence against protesters, but the security forces continued to open fire on the peaceful protests. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. 
I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, ongoing clashes between the army and the fighters of the terrorist group M23 have resulted in the forced displacement. Uh, Since the beginning of this week, inhabitants from six villages in the Democratic Republic of Congo East, including Burkima, Naisisi, Ruhanga, have fled clashes between the Congolese Army and M23. On Tuesday, a fresh attack carried out by the March 23rd Movement, or M23, targeted a Congolese Army position in the territory of Rushuru, uh, just north of the city of Goma and eastern DRC. Uh, just like an estimated 2,000 people said Sarah Basigua, uh, who was left homeless and traumatized, she said we saw several dead people. The 29-year-old mother said, she went on to say that I lost my children and my husband in the chaos, and I've been left with nothing. We are sleeping here in this school on the ground. There's just cement, no blankets. We suffer a lot. Following the attacks, the United Nations uh, mission to Congo, which uh, could be characterized as blue helmets, were deployed on yesterday. The incident took place in the vicinity of Virungu National Park, a United Nations educational, scientific, and cultural organization heritage site, renowned for its large guerrilla populations. The M23, which also calls itself the Revolutionary Army of Congo, is a former rebel group of the Congolese previously backed uh, by neighboring states. And finally, uh, in the United States, uh, the problem of infrastructural repair and redevelopment is urgent, as was demonstrated uh, just yesterday when a 50-year-old bridge collapsed in Pittsburgh uh, early on Friday morning. It required rescuers to rappel down a ravine and form a human chain to reach a few occupants of a municipal bus that plummeted along with the spam. No deaths were reported, however. The collapse came hours before President Joe Biden arrived in the city to promote his $1 trillion infrastructural plan, uh, which has earmarked about $1.6 billion for Pennsylvania's bridge maintenance. At least four people required hospital treatment. Five other vehicles were also on the bridge at the time. The cause was being investigated, and crews searched under the debris for additional victims. A large crack showed on the end of the bridge uh, where the segment was bus landed 150 feet, uh, about 46 meters, down in the ravine as if hit uh, by an earthquake. A car landed upside down in front of the bus, which was operated uh, by the Pittsburgh Area Transit Authority. The Forbes Avenue Bridge over Fern Hollow Creek and Frick Park came down at 6.39 a.m., city officials said. The loud noise from the collapse was followed by a hissing sound and the smell of natural gas, witnesses say. And you can also read this story as well, as well as many other stories, over the Pan-African Newswire website. And that will conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, for this week. We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed 
to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Journal, if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, which is affiliated with the Pan-African Journal, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And these programs can be shared with other potential listeners uh, via email, blogs, and websites, uh, broadcast uh, through remote uh, sources, as well as social media networks such as Facebook uh, and Twitter. This is uh, Abayomi Azikwe. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a musical break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music of Miss Willie Mae Thornton, uh, better known as Big Mama Thornton, uh, with the tune entitled Bumblebee, Bumblebee. Yes. And uh, we're going to uh, now examine uh, in further detail uh, developments in the West African state of Burkina Faso, where there was a military coup d'etat following a mutiny by soldiers uh, last weekend. The coup was announced officially on Monday. And we want to uh, listen uh, to uh, some analysis of uh, what has happened in uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, So let's listen in uh, to uh, these commentaries on the situation there. What's behind the latest military coup in Burkina Faso? The president is arrested as soldiers mutiny against the government's failure to stop attacks by armed groups. What's required to restore stability? This is Inside Story. Welcome to the program. I'm Imran Khan. It's the African country where military coups happen all too often. In the latest attempt in Burkina Faso, the internet is down, the main TV stations under military control, and soldiers say they've detained President Roche Kabul. Tension escalated on Saturday when security forces fought with protesters who blamed the government for failing to stop attacks by armed groups. On Sunday, soldiers mutinied at military bases in the capital, Ouagadougou, and two other cities. The leaders of the revolt made six demands, including the replacement of military commanders and better equipment to fight armed groups. Some protesters showed their support in street demonstrations. The defence minister went on TV to deny a coup attempt, and the government imposed a curfew. Nicholas Hack is monitoring developments for us from Dakar in Senegal. There are celebrations in the capital, Ouagadougou, and across the country. Many saying that President Hakmak Kaboy had it coming. He was seen as weak and inefficient in the face of growing attacks from armed groups linked to ISIL and Al-Qaeda. And the tipping point happened in November where security forces, almost 50 of them, died in the region of Inata. And there was public outcry when it turned out that not only were they ill-equipped, but they had gone weeks without receiving their food rations. President Hakmar Kabar was seen as a president that was not uh, equipping the soldiers sent on the front line without their food rations. And so there were protests across Burkina Faso, and those protests were clamped down. Um, President Rahman Kabar made a series of measures, dismissing his government several times, most recently dismissing several senior officers. Some of them were arrested, allegedly plotting a coup against him. And so it seems now that they, the military, are now in charge of Burkina Faso. This may be a step back for democracy in a region that has seen three coups, one in Guinea, the other in Mali, and now in Burkina Faso. But for many in the country, it's seen as a step forward for better security. More than 1.5 million people have been displaced and over 2,000 people have been killed in a country on the verge of chaos, despite the support of French forces that are on the ground. Nicholas Hawk, Al Jazeera for Inside Story. We'll introduce our panel in just a moment, but first let's take a quick look at how we got here. Now, as Nicholas Hack mentioned, attacks linked to ISIL and Al-Qaeda have killed thousands and displaced around one and a half million people. The military has been suffering losses since the violence began in 2016. Last December, more than 50 security forces were killed in the north. The continued killing of civilians triggered demonstrations against the government. 
Military leaders also complained about a lack of equipment and training. In October, President Rosh Kabore replaced the chiefs of the Army and the Air Force to quell discontent within the military. And earlier this month, a dozen soldiers were arrested on suspicious of conspiring against the government. Let's bring in our guests in Accra, the capital of Ghana, Emmanuel Kwesi Aning, Director of Research at the Kofi Annan International Peacekeeping Training Center. In Uppsala, in Sweden, Jesper Bjarnason, Senior Researcher at the Nordic Africa Institute, and from Casablanca, in Morocco, Adama Gay, a journalist, author, and former director of information at ECOWAS, that's the Economic Community of West African States. A welcome to you all. I'd like to begin in Casablanca, uh, in Morocco, with you, Adama Gay. Uh, President Roche Kabul has seen the writing on the wall for a long time. In fact, he did arrest senior military leaders, but that's seemingly not enough to stop a coup from happening. How much trouble is he in? Oh, he's in big trouble because this was, uh, as you rightly say, uh, writings on the wall. Uh, people were not happy with him, uh, the civilians in the country, but also the military, they were not happy. And you remember in November last year, 14 November, 53 uh, Burkidabe gendarmes were killed in a town called Inata, uh, and the military complained that they didn't have even ammunition and food for themselves. So the president then decided to reshuffle his government, uh, to change his minister of defense, uh, and to even take charge himself. But this was too little and too late, and indeed uh, there was really a race towards his toppling. Just two weeks ago, there was an attempt to topple him by uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Zungrana. Uh, this gentleman was arrested and put uh, in uh, control by the military uh, as he was until yesterday. But uh, people, including a colleague of his, uh, decided to strike yesterday through a missionary uh, by expressing their discontent uh, towards the president of Burkina Faso and progressively, as uh, people cheered to them uh, in the city, uh, not just of Ouagadougou, but in Wayuguya, Kaya, and elsewhere, they felt emboldened. And later, despite the victory of Burkina Faso at the African Cup of Nations, leading it to the steam, to the uh, uh, quarterfinal, mm. the military said that this was the opportunity for them to fix forever this problem because their president, Mr. Rockmark Kabore, was somehow a lame duck president, unable to handle the security challenges. He was not really very strong and he didn't deliver the results that people expected him to right. bring to his country ever since he became president in 2015. Well, let's, let's make that point uh, to Emmanuel uh, Kwesi Aning. Um, Burkina Faso has a unique, perhaps more than any other African nation, uh, problem when it comes to fighting al-Qaeda and ISIL. Indeed, a couple of years ago on ISIL message boards, there was talk that they wanted to make Burkina Faso the capital of the new caliphate. That never happened, but the fighting has been tough for Burkina Faso. Does the army in Burkina Faso have a point? They're not equipped to fight this fight, and this is why they've mounted this action. Well, I, mean, I think the army does have a point, but it's not just about the lack of appropriate and adequate logistics. It's also about the doctrine. It's about the leadership. It's about the nature of the messaging and understanding of, of the enemy that they are trying to resist. 
armies work best when there's clear political leadership with a message that you know that drives the army and uh, and, and ensures that their actions are coherent. I think that political leadership of leading, of oversight, of control, of ensuring that the structures themselves within the army function effectively to be able to take on this enemy has been weak, leading to the army itself creating atrocities or committing atrocities that has led the army to lose some of the support from the population. The failure to establish a caliphate, mm. for me, is a temporary reversal. There's something of the Burkina government. Well, let me take that. Let me take oh, that point to our next guest, uh, Jesper Bjarnason, uh, who is in Uppsala in Sweden. Are we at a stage where the president is actually afraid of his own military? He was afraid that they were becoming too powerful, so he didn't give them what they needed to fight that fight. And now they're actually putting him under house arrest. It's his strategy has almost backfired because he was afraid of them in the first place. Well, I think it is a very tricky sort of. Um uh, structure to maneuver for the president, uh, and that will be true of any president uh, succeeding Kabore, if that is what we're seeing now. Uh, we have to distinguish, first of all, of course, between the troops actually fighting the war against jihadism in the north of the country, and then the central military leadership. And as Mr. Gay said, there has been some replacements now in the military leadership, but I still heard uh, soldiers protesting yesterday, calling for uh, another change of the head of the army, not of the president. So I think, uh, first of all, we have to nuance our understanding of what the, the different factions of the army actually are asking for. And then we also have to distinguish between the military elite and, and the, sort of the, the troops themselves. Um, I think uh, the president's challenge has been that he has, as far as I've understood, he has appointed uh, new leadership within the armed forces now that seem to be sort of uh, a group formerly referred to as Le Boys, who were loyal to uh, the state uh, during the attempted coup of 2015. And he may have sort of marginalized other actors within the armed forces that are now reacting to not being uh, as more central to power. So it's a very complicated structure and a very complicated game the president has had to play there. Uh, Adama Gay, would you agree that factionalism within the army is a big driver of what we're seeing? There is this army in the north that isn't very happy with the central army leadership, as our guest has just pointed out. Would you say that that's true? Yeah, that's true. And uh, also, this is compounded by the fact that there is literally uh, division in terms of advantages given to what we can consider the Mexican general in the army, uh, who have been benefiting from uh, the resources of the state, whereas the lower rank people who took actually the coup and did it yesterday uh, didn't benefit from it. So this is a reality. But beyond that, I think the country was not properly managed before Mr. Kabore came to power for almost 27 years after the uh, demise of uh, Thomas Sankara in October 1987 is killing by the people surrounding the former president, Blaise Kopaure, the country for 27 years, somehow, with the compromission deals made with the jihadists and terrorist forces by Mr. Kompaure, the previous president, they managed to 
literally stabilize and put away Burkina Faso from the countries that were affected by this uh, plague of uh, jihadism and terrorism. But now, uh, what has happened ever since Mr. Uh, Rokabori, by the way, who is a former really powerful person within the compound regime, but who managed to change gear and become a reinvented democrat, uh, ever since he came, uh, he, the problems have been multiplying. You have 1.5 right. million Burkinabi people who live as displaced people within the country. You have mm. uh, famine in the country. You have economic difficulties, and the military is dis disgruntled. All these things have compounded the problem and made it untenable from Mr. Rokabore. I know personally Mr. Kabore for many years. He's a gentleman, but he's not the type of leader, strong leader, that the Mr. Uh, gentleman from Accra said, who can devise a clear policy that the military would follow. He was right. really playing tricks to make sure that anybody who is empowered in the military would be loyal to him, when we know that most of the military, they were somehow uh, groomed under the previous president, Mr. Kopao. Uh, ECOWAS have just come out with some statements, quite crucial statements, actually. They're describing it as an attempted coup. Uh, they've also said uh, that the army is responsible for the physical integrity of Rosh uh, Kabore himself. And ECOWAS have also said uh, that they want to see rapid change uh, in the situation. Um, is anybody going to be listening to ECOWAS, Emmanuel Kwesi-Enning? Well, I mean, this sounds very much like like a repetition um, of the same statements with respect to Mali, with respect to Guinea, and now Burkina Faso. I think the primary element here are the democratic reversals, the inability of those who govern to really have a handle on the multiplicity of, of problems that their country has. And for ECOWAS to play that intervening mediatory role of nudging its leaders towards a more inclusive, open, dialogic form of governance. So there wouldn't be much listening because, look, the demographics on the sub-region have changed. You know, people are increasingly becoming impatient. Hmm. They are demanding governance that, that speaks to the challenges that they face on a daily basis. And both other men, B. Anderson, have told us quite a lot about the realistic day-to-day -day challenges of people. And I think West Africa's political leadership, including ECOWAS's leadership, must be sensitive to the driving forces of the majority of these people in the sub-region. Poorly educated, unemployed, no housing, poor health benefits, and increasingly unemployable and frustrated. But with, with sophisticated phones to know what is happening elsewhere. And this dichotomy of living in extreme poverty and non-functioning societies, whilst knowing what their counterparts elsewhere are having. Right, let me bring that point to Jesper Bjarnason. ECOWAS is the economic community of West African states. Is it actually a player in this particular scenario? Or, like I guess has just said, it's, again, the statements that we've heard before, and they're not really resonating with the people, the poor on the ground.
Well, I would say that uh, if we look at, at what's happening in Mali, I think ECOWAS is trying to, um, to, to reimpose itself as an, a relevant actor uh, when it comes to uh, sort of um, in, in Mali trying to, to convince the military junta to, to hand over power to a civilian-led transitional government. Uh, but it's true that, that ECOWAS has been criticized of being sort of a president's club where, you know, the heads of state of, of countries with questionable uh, democratic records are looking out for each other rather uh, than looking out for their populations. So I think uh, ECOWAS has a legitimacy problem to, to deal with. But I do think that these kinds of statements are necessary as a minimum. I think that not making uh, c condemning statements about a potential military takeover would be even worse. So I don't think there's much else for ECOWAS to do at the moment, but they will have to work hard to deserve uh, uh, credibility in the eyes of, of West African people in general, I would, I would say. Adama Gay, the same point to you. Are ECOWAS a player right now? No, ECOWAS uh, has lost uh, credibility. Uh, take the case of Mali, the huge type of sanction they decided against a country that is almost uh, going down the drain uh, has been rejected by the population across, not just West Africa, but across Africa. This is uh, President Clinton earlier. Uh, they are there just for themselves. Why didn't they react when Guinea-Conakry uh, president, the former president, Mr. Alpha Conde, was a civilian and he was killing people uh, who were demanding democracy? Well, why don't they react when uh, Sudanese people are being killed? Uh, our leaders, they put their eyes on constitutional civilian coup. And now they are coming trying to maintain to power people the ordinary citizens do not like. Mm. As a former director of communication of ECOWAS, I the change in demography with youngsters coming up, knowing what is going on in the world, and they demand an ECOWAS of the people, not an ECOWAS of the state or an ECOWAS of the head of state. So this is something they need to accept and acknowledge and open up the field of conversation to make sure that they do not end up appearing as uttering these kind of statements that people do not pay attention to. Mr. Rock Mark Cabore has been in power for almost six years and the problem has been worsening. Well, we'll get into we will get into that. To serve the citizens. Mm. We will get into that. Yeah. But I do want to bring in. Well, let's talk about the let's talk about the other organisation before we get into uh, how long uh, the president has been powerful. Uh, Emmanuel Kwesi Aning, where is the African Union in all of this? Do they have a role to play? Well, I mean, they've always had a role to play, but the structure of the relationship between the African Union and its regional economic communities, is that ECOWAS, based on the subsidiarity principle, becomes the first regional organization that should respond to the challenges that Burkina Faso has faced. And the African Union will take guidance from um, Abuja, where ECOWAS is based. But therein lies the challenge. And as um, Adama is saying, how do we ensure that we have institutions that are responsive and sensitive to the needs of people. Now, when you have institutions that are increasingly reactive and are not perceived by the generality of the populace that they lead as being under 
understanding and nuance in their perception of their problems. Mm. Then statements emanating from these institutions are perceived to be purely platitude now. Burkina Faso hasn't happened overnight. We saw ECOWAS meetings in Accra where they were focusing on Mali. So that gives an impression that there's a lack of appropriate intelligence or the Sorry, we seem to have lost Emmanuel there. We will come back to you. Uh, yes, Vivianus, and here we go. You have ECOWAS, you have the African Union. They are players uh, within this entire scenario that's playing out right now. But you also have a generational problem of corruption, of mismanagement that's taken place that's led to this anger. None of this is solvable overnight. So literally the future for Burkina Faso in the next few months will be a military almost failed state, surely. Well, let's, let's hope for the best, I would say. Uh, let's first see what happens uh, in these coming days. Uh, as far as I know, it hasn't really been confirmed that this is a, a, a complete military takeover. Uh, I, would just, I would look back to uh, the, the popular uprising of 2014 and say that even before the regional uh, jihadist terrorism became such an imposing problem on Burkina Faso, uh, the country was facing a very steep... Uh, transition from the 27-year rule of Blaise Compaoré into a more democratic state. And that challenge was then compounded by uh, the, the sort of the, the growing threat of, uh, and, and menace of, of the jihadist terrorism. So already uh, at, at that time when uh, Mr. Compaoré came, uh, came into power, you know, that was a very steep challenge to face. Um, and I, don't, I think he's been fairly realistic in the promises he's made to some extent. But of course, um, any, any head of state would, would struggle to keep the promises under those conditions. So what he has failed at uh, dramatically is, of course, communicating the extent to which those promises were just not possible to keep. The question of whether we're heading towards a military state now, um, I think we should be very careful about normalizing military rule in the region. I think that's, a, that's the first key point there. Um, and I think it's up to all these different actors, regional, continental, and international, to keep pressure on any military actor stepping forward and claiming leadership now. I think it's important that we find a, a way back to civilian rule if this is indeed a military takeover. Adama Gay, our guest has just said we should not normalize military Coups. But there is a scenario, maybe, that this might be a good thing because of the jihadist terrorism, uh, the jihadist armed groups that they face in the north of the country. Maybe this is what's needed to defeat those groups. And clearly that's an international objective. It doesn't have anything to do with the people of Burkina Faso and helping them, but it is an international objective. Is there a response here that is actually good? Yeah, there is a global recession of democracy uh, in the world. Uh, the Summit on Democracy organized recently by President Biden in America was a failure. And uh, many in Africa are looking uh, to Turkey, China, Russia, to strongmen leading some countries as model to emulate. Now, you have also to take into account the history of uh, Burkina Faso. This is not the first time the military come into uh, the political fray. Uh, I remember General Longtang uh, Lamizana uh, Sangure. He was a military 
uh, in the 70s. Uh, afterward, there was another military. And then in the 80s, there was Thomas Sankara, who came to power in 1983-84. Uh, and then Blaise Compare was also a military. So this is not something new uh, in the history of Burkina Faso. The problem is, you can't call countries to demand for civilian rule to be in place when those civilian rule, once they come to power, they entrench themselves and only privatize the resources of their countries and act for their sole interest, not for the common good. And right. this is the problem. Because I remember I was in Algiers in June 1999, mm. when the then OAU, the predecessor of African Union, decided to ensure that the military leave the management of the country to allow civilians. But it was against a deal that the civilians would deliver on good governance, that they would ensure the physical integrity of the country, and they, they would promote good governance of their resources and democracy. This is not happening, and the deal is failing, and don't be surprised that more military prompted by African youngsters and other African public opinion makers, influencers, will enter into the political fray because, like the other gentleman said, the African Union and other African organizations, they are absent out of the scene, and the United Nations organizations do not seem to understand the challenges brewing within West Africa at the moment, and within Africa in general, uh, to say the least. Well, thank you very much to all our guests, Emmanuel Khoisi, Jesper Bjarnason, and Adama Gay. And thank you, too, for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Imran Khan, and the whole team here in Doha, bye for now. Welcome back. And that was um, a report on uh, developments in Burkina Faso over the last week, uh, taken from uh, Al Jazeera. Uh, here is a, another report uh, from Joy TV, uh, based in Ghana in West Africa, discussing the military mutiny, uh, which occurred uh, last weekend, and then the announcement of a military coup d'etat on uh, Monday. Uh, January the 24th, and of course, uh, the ousted president uh, is being detained, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the economic community of West African states have condemned uh, the coup uh, in Burkina Faso. Here's another report, uh, as we mentioned earlier, from Joy TV. And we start from the land of Burkina Faso, a coup in 1987 uh, and another in 2014, a failed attempt in 2015 and now 2022. We'll be right to say this is where the gun rules. Communique numéro 1. Peuple du Burkina Faso. Concitoyens, concitoyennes. Amis du Burkina Faso. Au regard de la dégradation continue de la situation sécuritaire qui menace les fondements même de notre nation, de l'incapacité manifeste du pouvoir de M. Rock Marc Christian Caboret à unir les Burkinabés 
pour faire face efficacement à la situation et suite à l'exaspération des différentes couches sociales de la nation, le mouvement patriotique pour la sauvegarde et la restauration MPSR a décidé d'assumer ses responsabilités qui regroupent toutes les composantes. This movement, bringing together all components of the defense and security forces, has decided to put an end to the rule of Rock Mark Christian Cabaret on this, the 24th of January 2022. Une décision prise dans le seul a decision made solely to put our country back on the right track and to bring together our forces to fight for the territorial integrity of our country, the recovery of our country and the sovereignty of our country. We are here today to support our army that decided to save our lives. We are here today, tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. We support our army. What is going on here at the moment? Nothing is going well. We expected a lot from President Rock, and he has only disappointed people more with new appointments, always with a new government, but he was the real problem. We've been protesting for three days. There have been seven years since President Kobore took power, and a lot of blood has been shed. Burkina Faso is suffering. So that was the announcement that ushered in the new era in Burkina Faso. The military said it has deposed President Rogue Kabori, dissolved the government's parliament, and suspended the constitution. But the economic community of West African states ECOWAS has condemned the military takeover and asked the men to return the country to democratic rule. In a statement, the West African bloc also said it held the military responsible for the physical well-being of President Kabori, whose whereabouts are unknown. Let me bring you details of that statement. You have that on your screen. It says, ECOWAS is following with great concern the evolution of the political and security situation in Burkina Faso, characterized on Sunday, January 23, 2022, by an attempted coup d'etat. ECOWAS condemns this extremely serious act, which cannot be tolerated under the relevant regulatory provisions. It holds the military responsible for the fiscal integrity of President Rogma Christian Kabori. ECOWAS asks the military to return to the barracks to maintain a Republican posture and to favor dialogue with the authorities to the, resolve the problem. Now, Burkina Faso's army said it's taking over the country uh, on Monday. Let's go to uh, Ouagadougou now and speak to Hainte uh, Sanu, CEO of the uh, Philippos Media Group. Thank you very much, Hainte, for joining us here on Join Us Prime in Accra. Now, 1987, we had a coup. There was a failed coup subsequently. Others, and now we are here in 2022. What is the situation in, in the country this evening? Uh, that evening, everything is good, calm. Um, you know, all the day, people are going to work and, and waiting for another uh, communication of uh, the military who takes the power. And, uh, we are, and we also have, uh, at 9 uh, p.m., 
uh, to her to go home because uh, there is uh, what to say in, in French. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to say it in English. It's um, uh, an hour to go home because the military decide to, uh, to to fix to, to fix this hour. Uh, so we call it in uh, in English uh, in French. Um, um, I, Are you I'm talking about a curfew? Yes. Okay. So yes. the curfew has been imposed? Yes. Great. Is it clear where the president is, the deposed president Kabori? The post president Kabori is now in a camp called Tambuli Lapmizana. It's a military camp. He is in this camp and in the, in, with the military people. Okay. Uh, will you say that this school is popular with the people? Sorry? Will you say that the people back the school, the uh, military takeover, uh, do yes. they have the support yes. of the people? Yes, many people come on the road to support the military people, to support the queues all the day to do it. And uh, we have some manifestations in other countries in, in Burkina Faso to sustain the, the queue. Okay. Uh, everyone has somebody say no to the queue until now. Mm. Now, ECOWAS has spoken about this uprising, condemning it and urging dialogue. Uh, what has been the reaction of the military junta? From now, we don't have a, a reaction from military because okay. they, they just make some communication on the national TV every evening. Okay. So Well, we seem to have lost that connection for Hainte Sanu, uh, bringing us that update. But uh, what he was saying is that uh, soon uh, they will expect uh, a communication from the military junta and perhaps there will be a reaction to ECOWAS's concerns. But let's go to the other uh, connection. Imano Bombande is a senior UN media advisor and joins us uh, here on Join News Prime. Mr. Bombande, I'm grateful that you joined us. The last time we spoke, it was a failed attempt. Today, uh, they actually have taken over. Uh, was this preventable or simply bound to happen? Uh, you asked a very interesting question. And uh, let me greet your viewers and all your listeners. I'll say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that by September 2021, it was obvious that the frustration in the military was leading to a possible coup d'etat. But no, also in the sense that the army has not been united, even as I speak with you, okay. and even as the current events unfold. Mm -hmm. So the, the contending dynamics could have then facilitated such a coup d'etat or not. But as it has happened, uh, a coup d'etat has then prevailed. But let me quickly add that this uh, coup d'etat is the height of the greatest paradox in Burkina Faso. Because you started by trying to recall uh, the instability to coup d'etat. Mm. Uh, keep in mind that uh, in 2014, the very people on the streets, some of whom are the ones supporting this coup d'etat, are the ones who were insisting on constitutionalism mm. and insisted that President Blaise Kampaori could not have a third term by manipulating a constitutional change 
in the parliament and they physically attacked the parliament with stones and rocks because that is where the decision was being made and that led to the ousting of President Bless Kampauri. Yeah. Then a transition arrangement was put in with ECOWAS and UN support mm -hmm. and there was an attempt to overthrow the transition. But the transition was basically through the leadership of ECOWAS uh, uh, made to prevail and we were now able to have the elections at the end of 2015. But the reason why I call it a paradox mm -hmm. is that the constitutionalism that was installed is the one that has been uprooted and the very people who were on the streets demanding constitutional rule and respect for their constitution are the ones now supporting the overthrow of that constitution. And very so interesting, the, the turn of events, Mr. Bombande. But we always want to uh, focus on the effect on Ghana. Bring it home. There's Mali, there's Guinea, and now there's Burkina Faso. What risk does this pose to us? Why should we be concerned? The risk is pervasive in the sense that it's a general fragile situation across the Sahel. And we, to the south, are basically trying to withstand the threats and the risks that keep on coming. And to that extent, each time that we see these events, it reminds us that they make us vulnerable. Mm. Because it doesn't matter how hard we try, our vulnerability increases when there's a collapse of what you would call an elected government uh, in the neighboring Sahel regions. Yeah. And, and to that extent, we need to constantly update, rehearse, and prepare ourselves for the worst. And the only way we do that is through the regional co collaboration and cooperation. Uh, we provide leadership in the Accra Initiative. Yeah. We are the chair of ECOWAS. And coincidentally, we are also the chair of the Peace and Security Council of the African Uni uh, Union, mm -hmm. and we are on the Security Council of the United Nations. Yeah. So everything has aligned, and Ghana is the center of focus in terms of how do we fend this off. But I would add on to this, that you cannot solve a problem, which is a big problem like terrorism, by creating another problem to resolve it. And that is why values and principles matter. And we must continue to articulate that you fight terrorism better when governed by the choice of the people who elected a government mm. and not those who overthrew a government with the force of the gun. Mm. And finally, Mr. Bombande, you talk about how Ghana is leading in many areas at the sub-regional level, at the continental level, and even uh, on the UN platform. Let's look at the role of President Ikufuado in all of this. Uh, there are concerns that the happenings in the sub-region uh, may affect home uh, because it could be overwhelming. Is this legitimate? I wouldn't want to characterize it as legitimate. And let me quickly try to draw my uh, reason for that. If you look in Burkina Faso, uh, the topic of our discussion, it is not just the fragility and the overwhelming, so to speak, incapacity of Burkina Faso
to deal with the terrorist groups because the frustration of the people is the continuous attacks and killings. But there is also the fragility of social cohesion. And that social cohesion has been exploited by terrorist groups. If you look at ethnic cleavages, for example, the Pale of Fulani versus the Moshi people, and they have inserted themselves in the intercommunal and interethnic grievances, recruiting and taking advantage of these grievances to disrupt social cohesion. Mm. Now, in Ghana, I don't want to praise ourselves, and I don't want to pretend that we don't have intercommunal violence, mm. because in my civil society days, I have worked at the forefront of that. Yeah. What I want to say is, we must continue to build our social cohesion. Now, you don't build social cohesion only at the social level. You build it at the political level. You build it at the economic level. And that is why we can never underrate genuine consensus building as a united people on all policy issues. And politicians need to be educated and need to be informed that anytime you speak in a way that divides, that excludes, and anytime you insist that it is your only way and there is no other way, you are breaking our social cohesion and you are making us vulnerable. Mm. And we must be mindful of this. Yeah. As long as we have that social cohesion, I believe that at the security level of our military, we can protect our borders and we can protect the integrity and the sovereignty of Ghana. Great. But Mr. Bombande, I said briefly, I said the last one, but very briefly uh, before you take leave of us, people are watching and they may be wondering, what is it that is making Burkina Faso so volatile? Because we have 1987, uh, 2014, there was a failed one in 2015, and then now in uh, 2022. What at all could be the, the, the reason? This round of uh, threat that has overwhelmed Burkina Faso can be situated in the larger Sahel region. Let's be very frank and let's be honest with ourselves. Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso have failed in terms of the capacity of the state okay. to fight terrorism. Mm. And in their failure, the international community has also failed to provide the necessary support that would make it, in my view, robust enough to fight the terrorists. And so you have a G5 Sahel that was created to fight terrorism. It has failed. You have Barkani. You have all these initiatives. And yet, on a daily basis, the people continue to be killed, abducted, kidnapped, and you name it. And associated with that is the policy response. And specifically to Burkina Faso, there has been no coherence. Mm -hmm. On one track, there is a trial of Thomas Sankara to bring justice. Mm -hmm. Then on another track, the attempt to build reconciliation. These two tracks were disjointed. And in that situation, you should not be surprised that it simply caved in. And I conclude by saying this. It's not because the military are substituting themselves to the elected government that the problem is solved. Okay. As a matter of fact, I'm even more frightened because there is unlike Guinea, where you could see a sense of direction of where the military wanted to go, mm. these particular pushes are not clear where they want to go. Exactly. And so the vulnerability across the Sahel will remain. And ECOWAS, uh, in my view, with the leadership of Ghana, has to put it out there very strongly and forcefully. If you don't support 
The fight against terrorism in the Sahel and in West Africa, country by country, is going to collapse. And let us not pretend that mm. that is not plausible. Mr. Bombande, I'm grateful that you joined us here on Join News Prime. Uh, that's uh, a senior UN mediator, uh, Mr. Imando Bombade, formerly a Deputy Foreign Affairs Minister. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview uh, conducted on the situation in Burkina Faso, taken from Joy Television in uh, Ghana. Uh, we'll take a musical break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. January 29th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. You just heard the music of the legendary Better Right uh, from uh, the tune entitled Paralyzed. I want to move into a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, just from two days ago. 
based in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Dr. John Nkengson, the Director General of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, provides the briefing and, of course, uh, talks about the status of COVID-19 uh, vaccination rollouts and other public health issues across the African continent. The African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an affiliate uh, of the African Union, which is based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Let's listen in. The director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Gengasong, has already started the briefing for the week. Let's take it there live. Total of about 5% average decrease, 5% average decrease over the last four weeks. With countries like Egypt reporting an average of uh, uh, 15% increase, Nigeria 43% average decrease, DRC 43% average decrease, Kenya 37% average uh, increase, South Africa 37%, uh, 31% average decrease, and Ethiopia 25% average uh, decrease. In terms of new deaths, we've also recorded 18% average, uh, average increase, which is expected as you see the number of new cases even when they begin to peak, those who were infected previously continue to see death occurring there. We hope that with the, over the next couple of weeks, you begin to see a decrease in the number of, of these deaths. In terms of testing a continent, uh, we've conducted or reported a total of 94.5 million COVID uh, tests conducted since the start of the pandemic. With regards to vaccines, um, a total of 580 million COVID doses have been uh, received on the continent. And of that number, 64% total have been ad administered, with uh, about 11% of the population fully vaccinated, 11%. Egypt is reporting a 24% uh, fully vaccinated eligible population, Morocco 62%. South Africa, 27%, um, Mozambique, 29%, and Nigeria, 2.5%. Uh, uh, 37 million doses of the AVAC vaccines have now gone to 35 uh, member states. I think um, when that is, that is all, at least for this week, let's, uh, let me turn it back to you for a question and answer session. All right. Uh, thank you very much, John. Uh, colleagues, it is time for our question and answer section. Let me just give you the uh, details for you to put through your questions. So you have the option to come through live in, um, on our platform and also to utilize that WhatsApp number plus 251-945502310. Perhaps let's start off, uh, Dr. John, with a question about the Omicron. Many people are saying that this is the variant that will kill off COVID-19. How far true is that? It's too early to uh, it's too early when to say whether this is uh, going to be that the, the the variant that uh, kills off the pandemic. But because it infects many people, and as such, it means so many people have developed uh, a, a immune response to it. 
it is hoped that uh, it will create that barrier that we are we've been looking for. So I think, uh, but it's too early. We don't have any evidence, scientific evidence, to to point to this. But um, there's a, a hypothesis in that in that direction for now. You can imagine that if the virus that spreads very quickly by results to uh, a fewer deaths. Uh, will leave people in the general population with a high level of population immunity, which may help uh, in decreasing the severity of any subsequent infection uh, leading to that population-based level of immunization that we, we are looking, looking for. Again, we still have to wait on the science, full evidence to show that that is the case. Thank you very much. We rely on the science always. All right, we have Sarah Jervin, who is with DevEx, I believe. And uh, Sarah, you have your hand up, but please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, WHO has raised concerns about syringe shortages this year um, needed to administer vaccines, COVID-19 vaccines. Are you concerned, uh, and what is happening currently in countries regarding syringes? Thank you. Uh, yes, WHO is concerned. We are also concerned that as we ramp up uh, uh, and scale up vaccination, that will become an issue. And we are factoring that into our uh, planning. That is the Saving Lives and Saving, saving Livelihoods Initiative. Uh, you as expected, there, there's an overall supply chain issue across the world uh, due to the, 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 the pandemic. So syringes and other um, requirements for vaccination would not be an exception. All right. Uh, thank you. Let me just add that I don't, we don't know yet of any country that has stopped their vaccination program because of lack of syringes, but we anticipate that it will become uh, a problem uh, going forward. Okay. Thank you so much. Let's now say hello to Mohamed Mahome, and uh, Mohamed is with Associated Press and says, Two things, actually. The first one, do you think that making rapid COVID-19 tests for self-testing and home use, making this freely available in Africa, as we have seen in the United States and in the European countries, can actually help to expand testing on the continent in order to fight the spread of the virus? So that's the first question. The second one. The WHO is yet to provide guidelines on rapid testing and self-use of these. Is this an impediment for the widespread procurement and distribution of rapid tests in Africa? I think we should do everything possible to decentralize testing and make it uh, push it into the community so that uh, people uh, can be empowered to know their status and if they know their status, they can take action. Uh, uh, do that. That that would be uh, is critical that uh, we uh, work in that direction. We uh, have not issued gui guidelines in that direction, but we had we've argued before um, the the, uh, the start of this year that we were working to actually expand testing. Okay, and the most um, we've learned from HIV. One lesson we've learned from HIV is that self testing is so critical that if we uh, people know their status, they tend to do the right thing, especially for COVID. And uh, that will also be a critical component for um, preparing for the next uh, uh, variant. So let's imagine a variant that uh, is as transmissible as Omicron, but also is as uh, deadly as Delta. So that would mean that so many people will need to go to the hospital. But if we have the ability to empower people to test, 
and take the treatment. Uh, assuming that treatments like Paxlovir are available, then I think that is uh, uh, that will become a very important solution, a public health solution in uh, um, blunting the, 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 any wave, that potential wave due to any emerging variant. So I think we are all for decentralization, empowering of the community to do self-testing. All right, uh, thank you. Hilary Orinde from uh, Agence France Press. Hilary says, do you expect COVID-19 to be a major point of discussion at the upcoming AU summit? It has started already actually at the AU summit. And what issues specifically do you hope to raise? That's one point. What will be your message to heads of state and government on topics such as expanding access to vaccines and administering more vaccines? And what opportunities does the summit provide to help member states address these challenges? So a a full report uh, on the pandemic will be presented by uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa, who is the COVID champion for the African Union. And he's done a remarkable job uh, when he was chair of the African Union guiding the pandemic uh, at the political level. Uh, he has since continued to be a COVID champion and is leading a COVID commission. And we expect that, uh, uh, not really expect, he will present a, a comprehensive report on that with emphasis on uh, the need for the continent to rally around and uh, support and scale up vaccination. I think that will be highlighted and you'll be calling on his peers to uh, do anything possible to so that as a continent we can at least focus on the vaccination component of it. I think that will be a key uh, component uh, that will be discussed at, at the meeting. All right, uh, thank you. It's over now to James Macharia Chege at the Reuters in Johannesburg. James says, in Nigeria, Authorities are saying that the vaccine take-up there is on the rise. Is this something that you have noticed as the Africa CDC? That's one part. The second part is what would you attribute this rise to? And then he um, wonders, maybe the earlier hesitancy was due to reports of expired vaccines um, and that this has waned after the vaccines were destroyed. So the question, the second question really is, what would you attribute the rise in uptake of vaccines in Nigeria to? So that's a very good question, James. Uh, Remember, I've always uh, quoted this statistic that studies after studies, including those conducted by Africa CDC, the World Bank, and uh, a recent study published uh, maybe in November last year, all point to the fact that on average, about 80% of the population of countries that have been studied are ready to receive uh, vaccines. There's of course a 20% population out there that is hesitant to vaccine, but it's not started. Okay, each time there's noise around a vaccine, uh, like aspiration in the media, there is noise about um, AstraZeneca vaccines not arriving on time. It creates uh, 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 some kind of hesitation in the population with respect to the ability to go out and get the vaccine. So I'm not surprised to see Nigeria, the uptake of Nigeria increasing. We also expect to see that across the board as uh, the vaccination um, vaccines becomes available. We have a team in Cameroon, as we speak, uh, led by Dr. Mohamed Abdulazi, that is supporting 
the, the, the African Nation Cup. And we've also seen a very sharp increase there. Of course, that, situa- that situation is unique because um, it's a requirement to get into the, uh, the, uh, the stadium out in Cameroon. So we continue to see increases in countries. And, and we, as more vaccines are available and we improve our community engagement and communication, we expect to see more uh, uptake of vaccines across many countries. Thank you, John. We go over to Kenya and say hello to Judith Akolo, who is with the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation. And Judith says, in the past week, we have seen an increased number of deaths due to COVID-19, and yet we were told that Omicron variant is mild. Could these deaths be associated with Omicron, or is it that Delta is still dominant in Kenya? Well, again, uh, Omicron is not, uh, uh, as we, the word, uh, the narrative says, is not as severe as Delta. But it doesn't mean it doesn't cause death. I think that is, uh, that, that is just, it means that it, it's a reduced number of, of deaths compared to, to Delta. So, and until we see the data, the, the, the genomic data in Kenya, which we don't have at this point, um, it is difficult to know the ratio, the proportion of the Omicron versus the Delta. So I don't know if Omicron has come completely taking over the infections in, in Kenya because we don't have that data set. But please, uh, let's not, um, the narrative is not that Omicron doesn't cause death. It causes death, but it's much less than um, uh, what the, the deaths we have seen uh, due to the Delta uh, uh, variant. Okay. We have someone uh, writing from China Radio International, and uh, he is Ronald Mutia. He has three questions, or four, but uh, I'll give you the first two and come back to him later. So the first one is, what is your comment on the cooperation on advancing health between China and Africa? Then uh, secondly, at this time when the world is forging ahead to get everyone vaccinated, what would you say has been the Chinese contribution and Chinese efforts for the China-Africa community of shared future? I think the African Union has a, a policy of a, an open policy for a broad collaboration with all the partners and all parties. I think as long as they respect our agenda 2063, and Africa CDC, as you know, also has a strategic plan and, and a vision. Uh, the African Union also has an agenda that for our what we call a herd strategy that spans from 2016 to 2030. So I think. Uh, all partnerships within that framework are so much welcome. Uh, Africa CDC currently works with a, a whole host of partners, including China, uh, the, the United States, uh, the European Union, uh, Republic of England, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So many to, to name. We work with at least 50 partners. So I think, uh, in recognition that um, the issues that we are dealing with, including COVID. HIV, AIDS, TB, malaria are vast across the continent. So all collaboration uh, that leads to that shared vision, a vision that is encapsulated in the agenda 2063 is always welcome. All right, thank you. I noticed that the rest of Ronald's questions are not related to COVID-19. So I will move on to question coming through from Ralph Kruger who is with the German press agency, the DPA, in Johannesburg. 
Ralph says with only 11% of Africa's population having been fully vaccinated, will you achieve your goal of having 70% vaccination by the end of the year? We, it's a goal we are striving to, to, to get to. And as uh, the, the previous colleague indicated in Nigeria, if those trends we are seeing across uh, several countries maintain, then we remain hopeful that um, we should be agreeing to that. Exactly. The 2022 should be the year that we truly uh, elevate the percentage of people vaccinated, fully vaccinated on the continent in order to have a fighting chance of turning the page on this, this pandemic. So it's, it's not um, the 70% is not a wishful target. It is a programmatic target that we should all do everything, build the relationships and partnerships required just as the ones we've developed with the MasterCard Foundation to get to that 70%. All right, thank you. Agostino Leite, who is with the Lusa News Agency in Lisbon in Portugal, says, what can you tell us about the treatment protocols being used the new solutions in the near horizon, and eventually any forthcoming procurements. So we are still uh, working with uh, the, uh, the Pfizer folks to secure the Paxlovid uh, drugs. We, we are, uh, you know, these discussions are not fast, but we are in the right direction. We have also now uh, opened a communication with uh, folks from um, Merck. Uh, so those call it, that discussion will uh, guide us as to how we can also have access to uh, the, the drug that they produce. Uh, I think we are, look, we are open to all engaging with any company that has, is willing to work with us to make uh, the drug accessible on the continent. All right. Thank you, John. Um, before we move on to our next question, let me just remind colleagues of how they can ask their questions. So you can use the WhatsApp number plus 251-94-550-2310, or you can contact us either live or through the question and answer section on this platform. We move on, and uh, it's hello again to James Macharia Chege at Reuters. And James says, Dr. Nkenga Song, is there anything more that you can tell us about uh, the discussions by African countries to buy the Merck and the Pfizer pills? So there's not much I can tell you until the discussion is finalized. I think the simple thing, uh, uh, approach or goal is to be able to do a pool procurement and also to enter an arrangement that will normalize price and also just very similar arrangement as we did for the vaccine, the pool procurement of vaccines. That has become a model, a model that worked, and we hope that uh, it will also work uh, for us to get access to those uh, drugs. I must say that um, the discussions with the Pfizer uh, is more advanced in terms of the several meetings that we've had over the last series, uh, couple of weeks. Uh, we only just now we have a meeting set up this week with uh, colleagues from the, the Merck, so as we evolve and we are close to signing an agreement with them, we'll make you uh, uh, that information available. All right. Thank you. Paula Depoggio, good morning. Uh, please go ahead with your question. Yes. Um, thank you very much uh, for taking my question. Um, 
Okay, first question that I wanted to ask regarding an update on the Pfizer drug has been asked. And uh, the second question has to do with um, the uh, the latest trend. Uh, we we saw the WHO last week um, uh, seeming to be fully behind um, booster doses. And um, so a few days uh, after the WHO's announcement, uh, a research showed uh, that um, uh, individuals with cancer that even had the booster dose, they did not even have a sufficient um, level of uh, protection in spite of the third dose. So I want to know, um, we are several years into the, uh, at least uh, several months now into the pandemic, and um, we've been able to see uh, the data available as expanded. I want to know whether there are peculiar uh, trends that uh, member countries have reported to the Africa CDC regarding individuals with comorbidities, specifically like cancer, and uh, how their conditions are being um, put into consideration regarding uh, vaccination guidelines. Then um, my second question was something that uh, Dr. Detro Tedros mentioned in his speech uh, during the opening of the executive board meeting uh, of the Africa CDC. Uh, he glossed over it, but I think he, I would like a comment from you. You mentioned that uh, Rwanda um, has already submitted uh, uh, documentation uh, for its eradication of hepatitis B and C, while Egypt uh, is also on its way towards uh, eradicating uh, these two diseases. So I would like to know, uh, I would like a comment from you, and um, what do you think this trend from this to these two countries mean uh, for the eradication of hepatitis uh, in Africa and uh, the prioritization that African countries that also want to eradicate these diseases should focus on? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I think um, let's just be sure that we understand that our um, vaccination programs uh, started very late on the continent. So uh, collecting appropriate data from uh, across the country that is representative will take time for sure. There, uh, there are two countries that are vaccinating very quickly, like Morocco and South Africa, that <clears throat> will potentially offer us uh, a source of that kind of information so that we can have the depth and breadth of information to analyze and come out with the appropriate uh, conclusions. But for now, I think uh, it is uh, my view that it's still very early uh, to, get, to pull data and make a comprehensive uh, analysis of what, uh, uh, who has received a vaccine, which uh, comorbidities they have, and if they influence the, 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 the response. What we are seeing overall and this is based on data from South Africa, Paul, is that uh, for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, it provides an effectiveness up to about five months to six months. I think that is very good. And uh, We also have seen data from South Africa that with a booster a shot, there, a booster meaning that, remember Johnson & Johnson is one shot, that if you take the second shot, there, it actually provide, provides effectiveness, sufficient effectiveness effectiveness against the Omicron. So that is all very good. And this is all uh, data that is, is about to be published or is probably now published. I've seen the preprints of that um, data there. So based on it, we also know that the, um, the RNA vaccines decayed about four months to, 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 to five months later. So somehow it would suggest that around the time period of the five month mark, uh, it is appropriate to think of a re uh, uh, taking your second shot so that, I mean, call it a booster, a booster meaning 
uh, the third dose or uh, a second dose, that, that would be the case for Johnson & Johnson. That average time period seems to be working well for those uh, categories of vaccines. For the inactivated vaccines, we know that um, they do not really do well in, fa- in the face of the Omicron. But they also, we also know that if boosted with a non-activated vaccine, then they provide sufficient immune, uh, immune response. So then that can also be an algorithm to, to look at. But for the co-mobility piece, to, to early days, in my views, to actually pick a country other than South Africa, Morocco, and maybe uh, Seychelles and Mauritius that have a scale of vaccinations uh, very early on, it will be very difficult to, to have that kind of information for now, but it will come. In terms of the eradication, congratulations to both countries. Uh, that is what we, we believe in. We hope that um, other countries will learn from, from that. We also hope that it will become uh, a teaching platform on how to do that once uh, those countries that you indicated have submitted their report and they are clearly uh, certified that they have eliminated um, the disease. I don't know if they use the word elimination or eradication, but at any rate, it is a very um, positive uh, uh, um, outcome that must be uh, recognized and actually uh, congratulate those countries for their advancement. Egypt has been a leader in um, the uh, hepatitis work for, for long. They produce drugs against hepatitis C. Uh, the, the president Sisi, has been very strong on pushing the hepatitis agenda. So I think I, I'm not surprised that they are, they are achieving that level of uh, success so far. All right, uh, thank you. Um, hello to Roda Odiambov, uh, who is with the BBC. Roda says, has any African country reported the sub-variant of Omicron that is named Stealth Omicron? And if yes, which countries are these? That's the first part. The second part, in terms of sequencing, do African countries have the capacity to detect this substrain? She adds that UK scientists say that this variant lacks a feature that allows probable cases to be distinguished among positive PCR tests. Finally, she asks, should we be worried? I think the, the answer to that question clearly is that we just don't have that information yet across the continent. And it's not because we don't have the capacity. Uh, we have a very strong network of what we call in the Africa CDC pathogen genomic network uh, that has um, allowed us to function collectively as a continent. And that network is full of very capable labs uh, across uh, the, the network, including specialized labs in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Senegal, regional labs in Morocco, and um, again, it's a, an impressive network, too, and they are extremely experienced now in, in this, uh, um, the, the ability to sequence and detect variants. So uh, we will be looking at the database very carefully. And again, just let's just remind ourselves that it's not because a variant is reported that uh, that that variant occur at that time point. I mean, Omicron will be a good example where we all talked about Omicron from South Africa, but we also know that data from other countries suggest that, including the Netherlands and the United States, that the variant was there even before the South Africans reported it. So detecting a variant doesn't mean that 
that variant started from that country. And it could have been in the database. So the first order of business is always to go back to the, the existing database, analyze it, and see if that variant has already uh, been in the, in the mix for, for a while. So uh, the second part of the question with respect to will the variant be, uh, be picked up I mean, let's cross that bridge when we get there. We don't it's speculative at this point. Let's um, see what, um, if, first of all, the variant is available and also learn from those who have picked the variant in the UK to see the, the laboratory data if uh, the, the variants are being missed by the standard test. Uh, thank you, John. We have five or six questions that are coming through as secondary questions that have been asked by colleagues, and uh, I will put those forward to you. But uh, colleagues who, are, who want to ask uh, uh, new questions, uh, please go ahead and do so, and we'll give you priority if it is your first time around. So on to the follow-up questions. The first one is from Sarah Jerving, who's with DevEx. She says, what sort of decisions on the African Medicines Agency do you expect to be made during the African Union meetings in the coming weeks? I don't think that, uh, as far as I know, there are any decisions that will be made. I think the uh, African Medicine Agency has now been officially launched through a treaty. Uh, the, the task ahead is to get it operationalized, which is to have it hosted somewhere, recruit the staff, and start making it do what it's supposed to do. I don't think the head of state uh, or the executive council or foreign ministers will uh, be uh, issuing uh, additional decisions there. The uh, AMA, as it's as is known, is a very welcome initiative. It's com it will complement the work of Africa CDC tremendously. I think it's all part of the Agenda 63. Uh, if you look carefully into that agenda, it, talk it talks about developing institutions. And the African Union is has already set up the Africa CDC, is now setting up the African Medicine Agency. So I don't think there's a decision that will be made um, uh, in the, the, the coming days. But I might not be privileged to the details of that because the uh, AMA, as it's known, is not part of Africa CDC. Uh, it could be that it's very possible that some other discussions are happening that I'm not uh, privileged to. All right. Uh, thank you. The second question that we have coming through from Agostino Leiter, who is with the LUSA News Agency in Lisbon. He says, Africa CDC said two weeks ago that Guinea-Bissau was one of seven or eight countries experiencing the fifth wave of COVID-19. But the Guinean authorities say it is the fourth. Is Dr. John in a position to clarify on this? I'm not, uh, if, if we have had the, this question earlier, um, we probably would look more into our data and compare that with what, um, and, and do the analysis, compare that with what uh, the Guinea um, is reporting. I think, let it be known that uh, Africa CDC doesn't, uh, um, Africa CDC rely on countries to provide the data. Okay, that is reporting uh, data from countries. We do not, uh, Coming out of that Africa CDC report for the week, uh, John Gengasong talking about a 5% decrease over the last few weeks across the continent of infections. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report, uh, weekly briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The uh, African Centers for Disease Control and Pre Prevention 
is an affiliate of the African Union. We'll take a musical break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of today's Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I'd rather be lonely than to lose you. I'd rather be blue than to be Right now, we want to move into our concluding segment uh, of our program, and uh, this is The World Today and After Live from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, bringing us up to date on some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network.
ECOWAS sends regional military chiefs to Burkina Faso following Monday's coup. France's defense minister says the country won't stay in Mali if the price is too high. And Somalia reaches out to the diaspora as it raises funds for famine response. Hello and welcome to Africa Live on CGTN. I'm Mahe Mutua in Nairobi. Also coming up. In sports, Burkina Faso faced Tunisia in the second Africa Cup of Nations quarterfinal in Cameroon. Welcome to the program. We begin the hour in Burkina Faso where a committee of West African Chiefs of Defence Staff has arrived in the capital, Ouagadougou. Regional bloc ECOWAS has sent the team on a fact-finding mission a day after it suspended the country following a military coup. The defense chiefs are expected to hold consultations with junta leaders and carry out an assessment of the security situation in the country. They will then submit a report to be reviewed by regional heads of state. Well, let's see how some Burkinabes are feeling about the visit from the ECOWAS delegation and the country's suspension from the regional bloc. In regards to ECOWAS, every day we were suffering, we were dying from attacks every day. So if an ECOWAS suspension means we regain peace and security, that's fine with us. We are not interested in this so-called civil military delegation because if ECOWAS had a military force, why didn't they come and liberate Mali and Burkina Faso? I would like to add that ECOWAS should not bother itself. We will take the sanctions already imposed on Mali, photocopy them and drop them off here in Burkina Faso ourselves because we have been living under conditions similar to those sanctions since 2015. Whether ECOWAS comes or not, we are determined to accompany the Lieutenant Colonel Paul Damiba for the total liberation of our country. Whether ECOWAS is there or not, we remain firm and engaged in order to guarantee our sovereignty on the national and international stage. We will support our various social movements as well as those now in power. Well, earlier we spoke to Ndu Nuokolo, managing partner and chief executive at the consulting firm Next Year Security, Peace and Development. He explained why, why he thinks ECOWAS has yet to impose sanctions on Burkina Faso or the members of the military junta. First, I think they are trying to be strategic. They, they are trying to look at, can we, can we discuss with them? Can we have a transition plan? If you look at what has happened in Guinea, Guinea, uh, Guinea has not even given a, 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 a timetable. Mali that said it would be next month has gone back to stay four years after. So can we have an agreement with Burkina Faso where we can have a transition program? Now the issue is that the political leadership in most of these African countries have really failed them. You can't continue to rely on uh, France to solve your problem. So what ECOWAS is looking at, where France cannot solve the problem of these Francophone African countries, what is it that we can do? So invariably, ECOWAS is trying to find a solution. However, it is important to, 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 for some people to think, okay, is ECOWAS trying to muster a, a military um, attack, a military solution to the problem? No, ECOWAS does not even have the strength. Nigeria, which is the hegemon in the region, is struggling. So who will Nigeria send? So it's important that they start finding a solution to the issue. I think what they're trying to do is to look at it strategi strategically, 
look at it militarily, but not in, not intending to go all out to have a military solution. But see if there can be a political solution to solving the problem. European states combating Islamist militants in Mali will try to find a way to keep their mission going. But there are limits to the price that France is prepared to pay to remain there. That is, according to French Defence Minister Florence Parly. Parly says the ministers involved in the European Special Force are united in wanting to maintain the mission and must determine its new conditions. Relations between Mali's military junta and its international partners are close to breaking down after it failed to organize an election following two military coups. We observe that the conditions of our intervention, whether military, economic or political, have become harder and harder to manage. In short, we are not prepared to pay an unlimited price to remain in Mali. I spent a lot of time speaking with the European partners, having discussions to identify what the best path is for us. All we want is to pursue this fight. We are united in this goal and we must now determine these new conditions. Now a new food security assessment released by the United Nations World Food Programme shows that almost 40% of people in Ethiopia's Tigray region are suffering an extreme lack of food. The area has been hit hard by the 15-month Ethiopian conflict. CGTN's Astatal has that report. More than 9 million people in northern Ethiopia are in need of humanitarian food assistance. Families are exhausting all means to feed themselves due to the scarcity of food items. Because of the food shortage, we feed our children first, and if there's anything left, we then can eat. Otherwise, we go to sleep on an empty stomach. Even though I am pregnant, I never have a full meal. The World Food Program estimates that on average crisis-affected families in northern Ethiopia have been getting less than 30% of their caloric needs in the past month. The body, however, says constant humanitarian food assistance will be required at least throughout 2022. But none of the body's convoys have been able to reach Tigray since mid-December due to fighting and insecurity. The conflict continues to drive hunger more and more. We have a few million people in, in, in Tigray and in a very dire situation. Hundreds of thousands of very malnourished kids in Afar. In Amhara, the situation is not getting better. Uh, in total, well over 9 million people that uh, have no access to food at the moment. The WFP's Northern Ethiopia response urgently requires 337 million U.S. dollars to deliver assistance over the next six months. The WFP will reportedly begin running out of the capacity to purchase food from February. Astatal, CGTN. Further afield, Russia's defense ministry has released footage of its soldiers arriving in Belarus for joint military exercises. It says the drills are aimed at practicing coordinating allied forces. It comes amid heightened tensions over Russia's military buildup near the border with Ukraine. The West has warned about a possible Russian aggression against Ukraine, but Moscow denies any plans for an attack. The U.S. and its allies have warned Russia with economic sanctions if it invades its neighbor. NATO also says the Western military alliance is watching closely as Russia moves troops and arms into Belarus for drills. 
Well, our correspondents Natalie Carney and Alyosa Milenkovic have the details from the region. Rather calm and relaxed. We're actually at the uh, main train station here in Kiev, and as you can see, um, there's not much action taking place. That being said, it is relatively early on a Saturday morning. Uh, but this does follow a press conference held by the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, um, in which he essentially accused the West of sort of over-sensationalizing the potential of war, saying that that could cost Ukrainians dearly. We don't need the panic, uh, which could further cripple the economy here in Ukraine. There are no tanks on the streets, he says, uh, and he doesn't consider the situation any more tense um, than he has over the last eight years. Don't forget, this has been going on for the last eight years. So the Ukrainians are very much used to the sort of ebb and flow of tensions happening in the east of the country. That is to say, though, that Vladimir Zelensky also highlighted that that does not mean there isn't a potential for a possibility of escalation in this circumstance. I'm in the city of Prohorovka, but let's just go a little bit into history to explain why I'm here. This is the place where the largest tank battle in the history of humankind happened back in 1943. Over two million people actually fought right here where I'm standing. Over one million casualties on both sides. So uh, the people here in this area, in this region, are really afraid uh, to see maybe repeat of the similar horrors of the war. And that fear is really hovering uh, in, in this area. While coming here from the town of Belgorod, uh, we came across several, I think I counted five or six, huge Kamaz vehicles which were carry what I think I recognize the Pantsir S1. Uh, this is a very sophisticated state-of-the-art uh, anti-aircraft system which Russia apparently deployed in this area. We also heard this, earlier this morning is that Russia called reservists in the area of Rostov. This is also uh, at the border with Ukraine and it is a little bit south from here. And of course uh, in the announcements of that uh, to, in the call to that reservist, uh, Russian military stated that they will have to perform live firing military drills. So apparently the tensions around here are still far from over. Let's take you back to our top story this hour. A committee of West African Chiefs of Defense staff has arrived in the capital, Ouagadougou. This is a day after ECOWAS suspended Burkina Faso from the bloc. Desiree Cannon has more details now. ECOWAS delegation arrives in Burkina Faso at a time when the new military regime continues its consultation with the various social political strata to achieve an inclusive management of the transition period, the former regime in power and the Burkina Faso political opposition, or affirm their readiness to accompany the military in their effort to end the crisis in their country. The priority of people here is the restoration of security and territorial integrity. This means that people are ready to give the military the necessary time to build a stable state. Now, it remains to be seen whether ECOWAS will be in line with the wishes of the people of Burkina Faso. Desiree Canon, CGTN, Ouagadougou. Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast uh, for today, uh, Saturday, January 29th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. 
you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you would like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to close out uh, with the music of the Harold Land Quartet uh, performing at the cellar from 1958. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week. Those of you who are interested in jazz, the name of Harold Land should ring a bell with you because Harold has appeared with all the greats of jazz in the United States. <laughs> we are very privileged to welcome the Harold Land Quartet. <laughs>